Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. So we have a great interview coming up for you with Richard Donaldson. He is the Director of Business Operations and Strategy at eBay currently. Spent a few years there helping them productize their infrastructure catalog within the organization for all the different subdivisions of, of eBay and has some very interesting stories about not just that, but how he got into the data center industry in general. Richard is also a good friend of mine and mentor of mine. We could quite possibly and have in the past uh, spent numerous hours, endless hours on many different tangents, speaking about the role of technology in our lives today, where it's all going uh, the 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 singularity of it all uh, and the the future of just our species. But I think you will find this a fascinating interview with someone who's a, a geek who got into this industry via non-traditional path and is now doing some pretty awesome, amazing things specifically for eBay, but also the industry in general. So without further ado, here is the first ever I Love Data Centers podcast uh, interview with Richard Donaldson. Rich, can you, let's dig into, let me kind of walk you through this podcast and what the intentions are. I think I, I may have outlined it. I probably talked to you about it, but I've been talking about doing this thing for years now. And like you, one of the things I appreciate most is not so much hearing the sales and marketing fluffery about yeah. products and services, but actually hearing stories that people have experienced working in and around the industry. Mm-hmm. So I've developed a list of like 20 questions that will help kind of dig through a little bit of how you became a geek to begin with, yeah. which I know we've had yeah, sure. numerous conversations about, uh, but also like the first data center you ever walked through and what that oh, experience yeah. was like. And then some of the, okay the interesting things that you've experienced. So that's, uh, I've had it, enough people tell me that uh, they would appreciate something like that and, you know, mm-hmm. hearing raw and real stories about what's going on in the space. So that's what this is. Cool. Cool. Awesome. First thing I'd love to know is where, from a setting perspective, like where, where are you right now? Uh, I am sitting in my home office. And what, what is that? Do you have like a bunch of monitors all over you or is no. it just your laptop? <laughs> no, no. In this case, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I was actually thinking about this the other day, and, and funny enough, now just getting into a new home, literally yesterday, 
uh, replaced a bunch of outlets. Uh, well, first, first and foremost, in the San Francisco home, right? I mean, we just moved into a new home. And um, one of the th- first things that jumped at us is a remodel, right? And so everything in the house was sort of gutted. It was an old 1929 home. But one of the first things that jumped out at us is how many outlets were actually in the place. And so the electrician who worked on the house made, went out of his way to make, you know, tons and tons of outlets, which in this day and age, you know, you don't think about all that often. Uh, but when they're not there, I mean, it's obvious because everything's plugged in, right? Like from laptops, TVs, everything else that you got going on. Um, but then funny enough, yesterday we had them switch a bunch of outlets out. So now that the outlets come um, with USB ports, right? Um, and, and so, you know, the modernization of home, home technology, like IoT and stuff like that, I mean, you really begin to see on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then, you know, have started to go away from large sets of monitors to just, you know, a simple Surface tablet, right? Um, so now, you know, where I used to have a couple big-ass monitors that I would sit and look at, I, I still have them, and sometimes I'll sit down to do some work on them. But for most of what I do in, in, in today, it's either on my cell phone, which is a S7, right, Samsung, or uh, uh, my Surface tablet, um, which I have a couple of them. I have a work one and a personal one. And then I have a docking station for it if I actually want to pop it in and look on a monitor. But, but I, you know, 80% of the time, I'm just sitting on the tablet now these days, um, which is kind of an interesting trend. Things are getting smaller. People are sort of, um, you know, mold, I mean, I, I, I actually can sit here and pretty comfortably do most of the things I need to on my cell phone now these days, um, which is a big change. I mean, it's not as comfortable reading on it as, as a tablet, but um, just sitting down um, now or going away with just the phone, you know, I mean, I'm doing all my signs on the phone, right? I mean, certainly all the emails and things like that. But now we even as a company have moved more towards uh, the Google applications, right? So using a lot more Google Sheets, Google Slides, or even Microsoft 365. And all of those things, again, are on a mobile device, right? So, I mean, everything is just moving to a smaller screen, smaller form factor, um, something that's far more portable. Um, the only large screen I have in my house now is really the flat, you know, the TV, right? That's the biggest screen I have in the house. Um, and that seems to also be something that most people, most people are moving towards those big flat panel TVs. So, long-winded way to get to your, answer your question, which is um, I find myself now being more minimalist with technology. Um, versus kind of spreading out over a bunch of different things. I'll just sit, yeah. sit in a chair and, you know, have a cup of coffee and, and pull up my, you know, I'm just sitting on my countertop uh, in my kitchen uh, with my, my tablet open. Right on. Yeah, it's funny. That's exactly what I'm doing. I've got my Surface. I've got my uh, Droid or Motorola Pro, I think it's called. They're super, I don't know, something. It's one of, one of the newer Motorola's. And my goal by the end of this year is to be able to do 95% of my job from my phone so that I could be yeah. truly anywhere and at least have people who can do the stuff that needs to be done on spreadsheets or whatnot, but be able to right. do the vast majority of it just from my phone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, and that's, that's, that's a trend that is permeating just about everything, right? I mean, it's look at, look at, uh, um, just the way not only you use your stuff, but then also just the way people are, you know, using their cars and, um, I mean, now even like you go into most of the, um, uh, you know, like a Tesla or something like that, and, and the cars are becoming hubs, right, themselves, you know, with big iPads in them or whatever. Um, right, for better or worse. So, I mean, my, my, yeah, my biggest fear with those is that all the cars are going to be 
not are going to be they already are hackable in some way shape or form not so much in like you can log into it and you can tweak it to do your will which you've been able to do for some time but that people can remotely log into your 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 car and start screwing around with oh for sure but i mean this is sort of the that that has been the the pro and the con of everything moving online anyways i mean everyone talks about you know all the different hacking and things that go on these days and that's None of that's new. That's been going on since since the internet came around, right? So it's it's you know, that's just that's just part of the convenience of having everything move online, right? Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a awful thing if it if it ever happens, but it just you know, to be honest, it doesn't happen as often as people make it out to be. It's a persistent threat, don't get me wrong, right? But it's just not something that happens all the time. I think it's kinda of like, you know, back in the day when people say that apples were safer. Um, yeah. or Mac oh, yeah. products were safer. It's not so much that they were technically really that much safer. It's just that there weren't that many out there. And so yeah. if you were looking at the biggest bang for your buck from a security perspective and hacking perspective, going after those on Microsoft devices, you'd be able to reap a larger return because there were so many oh, of them. Sure. Getting into your your background and how you got to the position you're in now working at eBay, which, you know, very briefly, and, and we'll dig into this a little bit later, but what, what is your position and role at eBay? Currently, I run the business operations and strategy team for our platform and engineering group, which is a long-winded uh, way of saying the internal Amazon Web Services. Right? It's just the internal cloud and platform that runs all of eBay. So instead of being a public service like Azure or AWS, it's just an internal service with only you know, one big client, which is eBay. Um, and then the business operations and strategy is really focused on more the um, taking a look at how we spend money on infrastructure with a financial lens and bent to it and tying it to business outcomes so that at the end of the day, we're being very efficient with the dollars that we spend um, or as efficient as possible without sacrificing security or uh, availability um, because it is a fairly significant cost. We, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, close to a billion dollars per year just in running our infrastructure. And business operations is also, I think, a trend that has begun to emerge in the last, oh, I'd say, five, six, seven years, at least five years, uh, let's say, where a lot of technology companies haven't had as um, tight a focus on, on, on not just profitability, but just really you know, what, what is the core of business operations, right? Which is, again, Something that is, uh, if you look around in a lot of tech companies, a lot of them don't have like deep operating officers, right? You know, they're run by engineers, software, or hardware, or whatever. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the concept of you know, financially being uh, prudent, right, and efficient is not something that you see all over the place. But anyways, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing now. And that's really been a culmination of my career, which started back in the day um, in, in, in investment banking, of all things, in 97. Uh, and then did that consulting for a few years and then moved into my first startup, which was, um, you know, a company called Tech Planet, uh, uh, way back in the day. And then, um, that was really where I got my hands dirty with both, you know, what a startup and technology. And then also at the very early stages of infrastructure, because we were building small little, uh, local area networks for, um, small mid-sized businesses it was really the core of what we did. What uh, when time. what was the time frame for that? I know it was ninety nine two thousand. Yeah, ninety nine two thousand, and 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 so that was right, sort of, you know, I, I would say the internet and the dot com, you know, theory, right, uh, or 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 you know, 
whatever you want to call it at that time, from 97 to 99 was sort of this insane period where everything was a dot-com, everything was going public. Um, you know, the, the, the investment banks out here in the West Coast were going crazy. I was looking at a company called Montgomery Securities. Um, you know, if you had a dot-com in your name, it literally, if you had a dot-com in your name, people would just throw millions of dollars at you. Right? So it's this whole euphoria around the Internet. Um, and with that then came sort of, you know, at that time, actually 97, you still had dial-up, right, just way back in the day. So people still using phone lines, you know, literally for piece of K, uh, modems, right? You didn't have, you just, you just started to see DSL show up right around 99-ish, 2000. Um, and, and at that time frame, um, that's when businesses started. And it's still fairly expensive, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month or whatever, right? Um, versus what you see today, and so you know, business, of course, businesses are the ones that are investing in in, in that technology. Uh, they were the ones kind of move, well, small businesses and, and home networks moving online. Um, and at the time, you had uh, this whole DSL movement and a lot of uh, what's called CLEX, right, competitive local exchange carriers, which were so. You know, b- before we get into that, though, but hold on, hold on, yeah. back up, back up yeah. for me. So when you started a tech plan. What yeah. what were you doing at Tech Planet? Because I think what's interesting is how you went even before Tech Planet. Because you you've got some fun, interesting stories and, and background. You know when you oh, sure. when I think you I remember a story of you uh, negotiating like oil tanker freight f- in y- Europe somewhere at some point. In oh yeah, yeah, but yeah. So but did you, yeah. what got you interested in even going down that space? Was it a byproduct of you being in the Bay Area and just seeing it all around you, or what do you think got you hooked and interested and intrigued in all that? Well, growing up, I was always a bit of a a, a nerd gamer type, right? So when I was a kid, so I, you know, I was born in 1970, uh, you know, graduated high school in the 88, college in 92. So, you know, so the 80s and early 90s, you had Atari was a big home, you know, kind of uh, gaming system. Um, and then in television and long before, you know, PlayStation and Xbox and all that good stuff. You know, so the idea of Pong, right, was radical that you could sit there and play that at home. Um, I love playing those games, played them all the time. Um, and all the new games came out, played all the new games. And then in the 80s, this is when you had the Macintosh. Right, so you had the the very first versions of the Macintosh show up, um, you know, and 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 so computers were relatively, I don't want to say uh, new, but from from a mainstream perspective, they're relatively new. So they just started showing up in schools, and you know, kind of people didn't really know what to do with them, um, including teachers or whatever. And I always had an affinity for them, um, so you know, did very early programming and. Um, you know, kind of learned how to do the very basic kind of run functions in a computer to make, you know, a pixel move across the screen or something like that. So the, it was always something that I just gravitated towards. Um, not, not you know, like, oh, you know, at that time it was still kind of, um, you know, you were pretty nerded out. People, I mean, at that point, technology, you know, it was not cool, right, to be in the tech lab working in computers or whatever. Um, and I even remember in college, a friend of mine, from high school, who was in a, went to school out in Pomona on the West Coast, and I was on the East Coast at Colgate University, um, we texted each other uh, from our computer labs, respectively. And I, I never forget that, because it was like this. He told me to go down, called me once, said, you got to go try to you know, log into the system. I can't remember which, which chat room or whatever the hell it was. But we texted each other, uh, or ironed each other, I guess, respectively. Um, what school were you at? 
I was at Colgate University in upstate New York. And where was he? But it, it was, he was in Pomona in California. So, I mean, it was, it was this sort of crazy radical, you know, first, my first ever I am. Um, and I just thought that was amazing, right? That we're, we're sitting chatting with each other, typing in, in, in real time. In, in that. So what year was that? That was 90? Uh, so 90-ish, probably, yeah. 80, wow. 90, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that, so, I mean, from that point, I mean, I always, always liked computers and I always seemed to sort of just sort of get them. Um, and could fairly easily sit down in front of one and just kind of do stuff. Um, so I, I didn't scare me like a lot of people uh, for whatever reason. And so that, that kind of got me going, but then I went to, um, you sort of intimated, I ended up in Europe for about a year and a half. Uh, part for school, part for work, and um, and then uh, after that, and after I graduated, uh, took off for five years. Uh, didn't didn't go right into the workforce right away, and, and sort of traveled around and lived in sort of resort towns, um, doing odd jobs like you know being a chef and a scuba instructor and ski instructor. And it wasn't until that kind of got that out of my system, and then sort of settled down and ended up in in San Francisco in '97. And at that time, sort of coming out of the woods, so to speak, uh, literally, it was living in Tahoe at the time, moved down to San Francisco. Um, I had I, my, my relative job experience at that point was literally just chef, scuba instructor, ski instructor. Uh, and so I kind of had to pound my way in at the time to, uh, I wanted to become an investment banker. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was challenging to say the least because the resume consisted of, of being a chef. And so I got, a, I got laughed out of a lot of interviews, uh, but just persistent in, in, in you know, sort of dog-headed enough, whatever, uh, got into a, a company called Montgomery Securities at the time, which was sort of one of the big leading investment banks. Um, and, you know, found myself just really focused. Uh, one of the things I always, certainly when I'm on college campuses these days, and I meet a lot of kids graduating, um, some of the best years of my life were actually spending that time kind of out off the beaten path, so to speak. Uh, really made me appreciate what I wanted to do. Um, gave me a chance to sort of do the things that a lot of people sometimes don't just have a chance to do. And, and when you're, you know, in your early twenties, um, besides a little bit of school debt, um, you know, you don't have a lot of, uh, um, you have a lot of freedom that, that you don't have later in life. Uh, and you don't have that time ever again. Um, it's invaluable time to really find out who you are and what you like and what you want to do. And so, um, really kind of gave me an appreciation for, um, wanting to be in a, you know, I'll call it a more professional life. I mean, I have a lot of respect. Still have a lot of friends out who live in these resort towns, um, and that's a great, great option uh, for people. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's, it's very fulfilling. Um, it wasn't for me. Um, uh, you know, it just wasn't wasn't my cup of tea. Um, and so, you know, being in the hustle and bustle of San Francisco, things just worked out. And in ever since then, I've just found myself in, in sort of this nexus of technology and culture and and and, and life. Uh, and, and, and really have, you know, coming up oh, this year, 20, 20 years now in, in San Francisco. So it's the longest, the longest single place I've ever lived uh, wow. in my entire life. And you don't have any desire to retire and go back to being a scuba instructor or, or a chef in a resort town? Not, not at this point. Not at this point. Um, I feel like I'm just starting to come into my own from a career point of view in that I feel, um, certainly the last four years, almost five years now at eBay, uh, has really kind of taken a different, um, I've taken my career to a different level. 
um, uh, from just a, a, a knowledge base of you know what what it's like to work in a very large enterprise because uh, I spent most of my time uh, from 2000 to uh, 2012 basically um, before I got to eBay in startups and uh, you know small to mid-sized companies and that was again really invaluable experience uh, but very different and I think there's a big contrast between you know what it takes to be in a large company versus a small company. I mean, for all the obvious reasons. Uh, but then also, it's very eye-opening to be at a you know bellwether technology company like eBay, one of the grandfathers of Silicon Valley, it's a 20-year-old technology company. It's, it's ancient by most people's standards. Um, and really see what it's like on the inside, see what it's like to um, you know be at a staple brand like that um, and learn um, both the pros and the cons. Uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, even even in a high tech company to uh, maintain that innovation edge, um, you know, which is which is hard for any existing company to kind of you know keep keep sharp. Um, but again, one of the most interesting things I think, at least I experienced and found talking with you as you started working with eBay, uh, was why you were originally brought in to begin with. And I know you touched mm-hmm. briefly about this when you spoke to what, what it is that you're doing there. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, as a point of clarification, it's not that AWS is running your internal IT department at eBay, right? But in, in that you have, a, you know, as I understand it, you were brought in to help systematize, organize, and create a process around the procurement of compute resources within the organization so that you didn't have different divisions and CIOs and directors going out into the open market and trying to negotiate numerous new contracts where you could come up with your own playbook and your own sheet of services that people bought from internally. Correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so um, I was brought into eBay via a friend of mine, Dean Nelson. Uh, Dean has been in the industry for a long time. One of the top data center guys. Um, just been microsystems for a long time before he actually ended up at eBay. Uh, and so he brought me in uh, after he had been there for a year, and he was really focused on exactly what you just said. It's really bringing a, a more business view towards running infrastructure, right? We had all the engineers, we had the design, we had the, um, you know, the reductions and the PUE. From a technical perspective, you know, really, you know, very cutting-edge kind of uh, design. And again, not only of, of the data centers, but all of the infrastructure, right? Because it's one big system, right? It's, it's, you know, it's not just a data center. It's a data center filled up with a bunch of compute and network storage devices to create, um, you know, a platform that, that you know, a modern uh, web scaled out uh, business like eBay runs on. Um, and that whole system needs to be optimized, you know, so that you are, um, spending the least amount of money that you can without compromising quality, availability, and security um, because a business like EDS is running 24-7. So, you know, the ideas of supply chain and vendor management and uh, uh, asset optimization and um, even the analytics that goes around measuring um, that infrastructure to find out, you know, am, am I getting the lowest dollar per kilowatt or am I getting the lowest dollar per um, uh core or CPU, uh, depending on how I want to measure it, am I getting the lowest dollar per megabit? Am I getting the lowest dollar per petabyte? Um, you know, h- how are you addressing, or how are you um, looking at all of that 
uh, infrastructure with those kind of metrics in mind so that you can begin to not only benchmark yourself and benchmark yourself against the industry, right? Am I good? Am I bad? Am I wasteful? Am I not wasteful? And this goes way beyond just COE, which is certainly one measurement, um, uh, you know, when you're measuring your, your, your electrical consumption, but now you're really getting into the essence of what a, you run the business. It's got to be profitable, right? You're, you're not in it just to spend money, right? You've got to be making money. So, you know, while one of your biggest costs is infrastructure, um, you know, how to keep that cost down, again, without sacrificing the quality and the uh, availability and security. And that's, that's something that we've been working on, you know, since I got there. Um, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's, not, it's not new to us. There's no question about that. It's certainly um, um, you know, something that is uh, persisting in a lot of these major infrastructure companies and the complexity that goes into it, right? That's the other thing, right? It, it, this is very complex. Um, you know, not only do you have to understand technology, but you have to understand the business and the, and the finances that go with it. Um, and, you know, what you find out very quickly and what's happening trend-wise is that, you know, at scale, very few companies are going to be able to offer this at scale, which is why you're seeing the world consolidate down to essentially three major cloud companies, right? I mean, you know, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. Uh, that's, that's, that's about it. You know, data centers is going to be digital and Equinix. Um, you know, a few players here and there, but I mean, the, the the world is just consolidating more and more down, and it's you know it's no different. Again, you and I talk about this all the time, but it is no different from what happened in the electrical industry, right? In the dawn of you know when you think about Nick Carr's the big switch, you know, what we're seeing here is just this evolution of the 21st century utility, where you know it's going into the background, it's becoming something that everything runs on everything, right? And um, the utility providers are going to be sort of few and far between. Um, and, and for the most part, kind of like, you know, who knows how electricity is generated and distributed all over the United States or the world, for that matter. But most people don't. Um, mm-hmm. They don't care about it. They just worry about plugging into their walls at home, um, now with USB ports, and, you know, getting the electricity. Same thing with the Internet, right, and the access. It's, it's just that, 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 that's the trend that's happening. What and when was the first data center that you ever stepped foot into? And what was that experience like? Oh, boy. Um, probably it may actually have been 200 Paul when I think about it. Um, really? Yeah. When I, when I first started, uh, very early on the managed system company, ASPX, that I merged into United, but that's how I got there. Um, at that time we were hosting our stuff, um, at 200 Paul and, and 200 Paul being a digital realty trust data center in South San Francisco, one of one of if not the largest data center in Northern California, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, that was sort of uh, I think I remember going in there, and you know, you you drive past this building almost every day if you're on a one on one. So people have been driving past this building forever and ever and ever, and never even noticed. It. I've never even noticed it. And I went in there, and um, I just remember how nondescript it was, how large it was. Um, you know, you kind of pull into this place, and, and you know, there's no windows. And you um, walked into this sort of just one door in the side of the building, and, you know, kind of little, little almost like dirty shack, it feels like. But you get in there, and, and, and you know, all of a sudden, and once you get in, past security and past these man traps, and, all of a sudden, you're in this building, and it's like this massive space, you know, big warehouse space of just servers, right? And, you know, there's no fluff around it. 
unlike, say, you know, an Equinix building these days, right? I mean, Equinix is really kind of a gorgeous place to walk into, or Switch, for that matter. You don't know, it's a gorgeous place mm-hmm. to walk into. Um, Twitter Paul is very, very uh, um, utilitarian, let's call it, right? Um, right. But it works. And so um, that was my first experience walking in, seeing what it was, and then really just a, just a began a deep appreciation of, you know, where these data centers sit all over the world. Because life in the electrical generation plant, right, this is the backbone of the Internet. Um, you know, the Internet is a, a, a series of connected devices you know, globally. Um, and they have to live somewhere. They have to stay on all the time. And um, that, that seeing that and kind of, you know, beginning to appreciate that, uh, for whatever reason, I, I just sort of began to have an affinity towards that, right? Um, really appreciated the, uh, like a lot of things, when I get involved in something, I, I kind of kind of go all in. And so it just begins sort of my own um, need to understand how all this stuff's connected. And, 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 and to be honest with you, actually, the, the funny thing was, is, my very first uh, local area networks that I connected, right? So when it was back in Tech Planet, back when I was connecting, you know, just two computers to a DSL connection. Um, at that time, you know, it wasn't turnkey, uh, to say the least, right? So you had a little, you know, you had to go into your computer registries, you had to, you know, input IP addresses, you had to, um, you know, ping each other on the network to make sure that they were talking to each other. Very manual, uh, the, the settings. And that knowledge has been the grounding for my knowledge of all internet infrastructure because it, it hasn't changed, right? I mean, the concept of a trace route is still the same today as it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. So no joke, one of the most mind-blowing things for me in my experience with tech and technology and everything that we do today, that you do and I do today, was sitting on, I was working from home, working for you at United Layer. It must have been like within the first couple of days, two or three days of working uh, for United Layer. And you had me run a trace route. You had me go into the command script of you know my laptop and pull up, mm-hmm. pull up DOS, right? And run mm-hmm. a trace route. And that that single moment, I will. I can close my eyes and vividly remember where I was in time, because the second I saw that happen, I was hooked. I was like, "Oh my god, yeah. I get it. I totally get it now." Just running a simple trace route, and it's funny. In all the training that I do, it's funny how many sales reps in our industry, you know, data center hosting, don't even know what a trace route is. So it's it's yeah. uh, it's it's one of those things that I will always remember is just you saying, "Hey, yeah, just just." Go to go to command, type in command, pull up the DOS bar and just type in trade T-R-A-C-E-R-T space www dot whatever website you want to go to and just see what happens. And I was just blown away. But it's, and, it, and, is, and it you, is that simple, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I think once you see that and realize that this is this is how all this stuff connects, right? Um, that just that little bit of information. Um, gives you, like you just said, a deep appreciation for how the entire internet works. And the beauty of the internet is at the end of the day, when you strip it down to what we're describing, right? It's two devices with unique identifiers or IP addresses talking to each other. Um, you know, it, the, the internet is actually wonderfully simple at its very core layer, right? Um, it's just it's just big, right? It's scaled out. Um, and I think that's where you know, people kind of get lost and all that stuff. But yeah, when you actually do see that very simple ping, trace route, IP address, um, it's, it's, it's amazingly and breathtakingly simple, which is why they created it, you know, whatever, 
almost 35 years ago, 40 years ago, right? Right. Yeah, and, and speaking back to 200 Paul, because 200 Paul was also the first data center I've ever been to, and I think you mm-hmm. you and our Armand, I think it was you, it was definitely you, who toured me through that building for the first time. It it was just mind-boggling. And you, you know, going through the security gates and going through all those layers, uh, it, it makes you feel you know, somewhat important, right? Going into work yeah. every day. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That you truly are sitting in something that is critical to running the brave new digital world that we live in today. Um, but speaking to that, uh, it was your your drive for knowledge and your thirst for knowledge mm-hmm. that I, you know, I appreciated most because I think you and I are very similar to that extent. Where you probably remember, and I definitely remember getting there early in the morning because I had a drive from Santa Cruz, right and would pick up mm-hmm. Pete Sclafani down in San Jose on the way up. And uh, we would get in early, early and just bring in the electricians and bring in the facilities managers and just put them in front of a whiteboard and say, Hey, explain this to us. <laughs> oh, yeah. how, how, how does this, how does this facility really operate? You know, tell us all the different cooling systems at work. And it was really that, you know, within two months, I want to say we had probably more knowledge and an intimate knowledge of how that building worked than probably the majority of the people that were in there all day, every day, just because we right. we had access to so many just brilliant freaking people and engineers who were making that thing work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. For sure. And I think that, you know, and again, I was like you towards so many people through data centers and I mean, it's just, you can see it, you know, when they first see it for the first time and you know, the magic of the internet is these places, right? These data centers, these co-location facilities. And once people see them and physically appreciate the fact that there's this stuff that runs everything, um, you know, it's, it's pretty eye-opening. And, uh, and the funny thing is, I think a lot of people go in and they're so overwhelmed, they just, you know, kind of go in and forget about it. But, but you know, it, it's fun to know the inner workings of this thing that, that has now become the fabric of the way everything is done. Right. I mean, we talked earlier about you know things getting hacked, and everything is going online. Right, and if it's not online already; it will be online. Um, it's just it's just the way of of the future. In fact, there was funny. I was just reading today about a startup in San Francisco um, that just launched a medical startup, but it's it's sort of this um, I don't want to say sort of a bunch of Uber guys and Google guys. Uh, and, and they they founded this thing. Uh, okay, I'll take it up here and send it to you. But the um, yeah, send it to me. We'll put it in the show notes after afterwards. Yeah, it's it it it, 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 it the, the, it's like a concierge AI slash you know kind of automated uh, robotic. You know, I mean, it's, it's what you envision in a in a, in a futuristic doctor's office, right? Um, and it's it's, it's crazy. They've got this sort of kiosk that does the initial diagnostics, you know, temperatures and uh, blood pressure and all that stuff. And then, you know, that gets all captured on a, uh, a, a, a platform that then, you know, begins to do the analysis. And when the doctor does the interview, you're in a room where there's a big flat panel screen and the doctor doesn't have an iPad or anything. He just, he's talking with you, but the computer is picking up the conversation and making notes as the two of you interact with each other. And it's, it's, it's it's crazy. Uh, I, I'll have to send it to you, but it's, it's it, I mean, the, the world, everything, everything is online. Everything will be online. Right. And once you have cities and communities that are all, you know, multi-gig 
fabric connected Forward. with one another. Yeah, it's it's okay. going to create all kinds of new applications and use uses yep. for technology, right? Yep. Look up uh, Forward is the name of the company. Just that's the, it's all those names. So San Francisco's Forward is a doctor office powered by sensors and AI. It came out of stealth, I guess, recently. So I got a couple other questions for you. Do you remember the very first computer that you owned? Uh, I think it was a Macintosh. Uh, or Apple, no, Apple 2C. Yeah, the Macintosh didn't come out to later. So it was still a, uh, like a big typewriter kind of thing. I can't even remember the specifics around what was in it, but obviously it's like today's standards and is barely the uh, power of a cell phone. Um, but, Were you uh, using yeah, it for it was, work it was an or Apple for, for no, work for home school? Home and school, home and school, home and school. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, because then it wasn't until the Macintosh came out later uh, that we got one of those, but it was definitely an Apple II. But, you know, I was, I was, I was like, my dad was was in, he was in technology, right? That was his profession, and so he um, uh, was in computer leasing back in the '80s, which was sort of a big. It's funny because that's you know, come full circle. It's a lot more leasing now, um, but back in the day, um, computers, especially in the '80s, right? Big, big financing options. Uh, compute was really expensive. Um, and so, uh, you know, leasing was a great option for a lot of, a lot of businesses, but leasing was a very, very profitable business back in the day. So you've been working in data centers since when, since roughly, I mean, your first uh, step I mean, really inside 2003 or 2004, I mean, really? Yeah. So that was when you first walked into 200 Paul, it was about 2003, 2004. Yeah. How have you seen, because you've, you've been through the gambit, you've been through a lot of different facilities, you've been, you've seen yep. small use cases, you've seen large use cases, you've seen modular, you've seen wholesale, you've seen, you know, the, the multi-tenant facilities. How have you yep. really, like, if there was one thing that you could say has evolved within that space and the context there is one, one, there's two things. One. A lot of people still say, well, if you've seen one data center, you've seen them all, which, you know, for obvious reasons, I flatly disagree with. Um, mm -hmm. And then a lot of other people say, well, there's really nothing unique that's evolved in the data center industry over the last 15, 10, five years, which I also mm -hmm. take strong uh, disagree, you know, I disagree strongly with. But what is one or two things that you can point to where you can say, this is specifically evolved in that space over the last, let's say, 10 years? Well, pretty simply, I think the, um, the whole idea of how a data center is laid out, right, has naturally, everyone's kind of come to the same conclusions, right, where uh, you look back 10 years ago and, and you walked into a data center and everything was sort of scattered all over the place with really no uh, concept of airflows uh, like you do today. We've got hot aisle containment, very organized, structured um, layouts within data centers. So I think the you know entire layout has evolved to a place where most everyone now is doing you know containment, hot aisle containment generally. Right, you're 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 expelling most of the uh, uh, heat generated from the compute that's running in the facility, and replacing that air you know through air, outside air economization or uh, you know just just ambient air. Um, within within the facility, and that that that's probably one of the biggest designs that's just sort of stabilized, right? Because now you're looking at 
you know, where if Kiwi's the measure, where everyone's getting down to, you know, really close to one, right? And that's that's a good thing. Then I think the second evolution is also um, not only is the design then of the, uh, the layout uh, consistent or becoming more consistent, is also then the whole concept of the design of, of all that goes in there, right? So it's not just the data center, but it's the compute itself, it's the, it's the network itself, it's the storage itself. So like eBay, um, which is the same as you know, any other scaled-out company, um, Google, Facebook, whatever, you know, we look at this as all one big system, right? And so how we design hardware, uh, which includes, again, compute and network and storage, you know, is one big system that goes into um, this facility and how that whole facility runs and is organized, um, you know, is done in a way that, that you know, now, uh, you know, our hardware engineering is um, getting into how the rack is laid out. You know, how do we ensure that we've got the optimal amount of compute in a fixed configuration of 42U rack? Um, and how operationally do we get that rack in and out in the most effective and efficient manner? And how do we ultimately service that rack, right? So if I've got a bunch of compute with a bunch of wires, um, but I can't get at a hard drive when it fails, and they will fail, um, that, that, uh, that's part of the system, the operational side of the things that we, we actually look at now, those details. Um, so that, that, I think, is a big step in evolution, right, in, in, in systematically designing the entire infrastructure as one, one, one big system. Um, and I think you know, now probably... The, the, the next part of that evolution, again, as I mentioned earlier, is that um, it's not that the data centers themselves, well, it, it's that the infrastructure is becoming a commodity. It is a commodity, right? It's running, so everything is expected to run online, and therefore, as a true utility and commodity, um, there's only a handful of companies that can provide this stuff at scale. And um, that is quickly becoming quite obvious as to who they are, right? The big three, right? Google and, and Amazon and, 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 and um, Microsoft. Um, everything else is going to sort of drift to the, to the wayside at, 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 at some point. And I think that, that from, a, from a, again, an evolutionary point of view, it's pretty amazing to think about that, you know, just 15 years ago, or even 12 years ago, you had a huge sprawl. I mean, most of the data center companies that existed in the late 90s um, imploded when the internet sort of imploded briefly in 2000, 2001. Um, most of the internet co-location companies you see today um, have since been swallowed up. You know, one of the only ones that survived is Digital or Equinix, right? And, and, and Equinix is really one of the only companies who have survived those 90s. It, it was founded back in 96 or 7 or something like that, right? Uh, Jay Adelson and Bill Norton and a couple other people. Um, but digital was, you know, I think 2001, right? Some of the right. liquidated assets, a bunch of the bankrupt companies. Um, but in 15 years' time, we've gone from a huge sprawl of, of a variety of different hosting companies and cloud companies and whatever to the inevitability of just there being three. Um, that's a pretty massive shift in a very short period of time. I mean, in the electrical industry, it took decades for it to sort of shuffle itself out. Um, but, you know, the, the internet... And technology is moving so fast and so quickly, it's pretty stunning um, to see how something like that has evolved and you've gone through the, uh, you know, kind of uh, expansion, explosion, if you will, of the amount of companies that provide 
um, these types of services to just a handful that you have today. That's pretty stunning. I don't know, man. I, I would venture to say that I see the exact opposite happening. I mean, by the nature of where I sit, because I'm constantly uh-huh. hearing about and, and uh, researching new service providers, both data center and hosting mm-hmm. and quote-unquote cloud providers, I, I see the uh-huh. number. Yes, there are big ac- big acquisitions going on, right? So mm-hmm. CenturyLink Level 3, uh, Windstream, CenturyLink, uh, uh, TierPoint, Windstream. Um, Zayo acquiring companies, the big telecommunication companies making acquisitions here and there and or divesting their data center assets um, to some of the big players. That being said, I could probably list off the top of my head about 40 different unique data center owner operators that may not be global and ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. but they may be regional Mm -hmm. or they may have three, four, five different facilities across the country. That's been an extremely fascinating part of my job because I expected as you're stating that everything would roll up under under three, four companies. But what mm-hmm. I see happening is so much capital flooding into the industry and mm-hmm. new new entities coming up. So I'll bring up an example. You've probably heard of Edge Connects. Have you heard of Edge no, Connects? They are, you should look them up. They have become over the last four or five years one of the largest data center players in the industry that to to what you're stating no one even knows about their clients are comcast facebook cox google amazon yeah i mean name a big entity and then name dozens of other mid-sized companies their focus Mm -hmm. is building data centers in the on the edge it's fascinating how a company like that can emerge and grow so quickly and they've somewhat intentionally been doing it under the radar of their competition, mm-hmm. but they're building super cheap modular facilities that are, you know, grounded, secure, uh, highly networked. And their clients are the likes of Cox and Comcast and Facebook and Google and Amazon and Akamai and, you know, the big dogs, they're not located downtown Chicago. They're not located downtown, you know, in Ashburn. Um, they're not located in some of the major downtown Manhattan. However, they've got dozens of facilities all over the place. Um, okay. So what's what's interesting to me is how many new data center providers and players are popping up that because they're not behemoths, they are able to actually leverage some innovation that some of the big dogs simply can't can't leverage and can't roll out as quickly. And they're taking up market share fairly quickly as well. Um, so the edge is interesting and the diversity of, of companies that are catering to the diversity of clientele to me makes me believe that though the, the reality is over 50%, I think you've probably heard this metric, over 50% of the net new capacity being consumed in the data center space. So raw space and power is being consumed over 50% by six companies, IBM, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, um, Google. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So that that leads people to believe that all of that capacity is either being built by those six companies and managed by those six companies. But which is not, which is not. I mean, I agree with that. Right, that I understand. There's always room for innovation, right? There's always room to. Uh, uh, especially in infrastructure, like you said, on the edge, I think that's an interesting uh, point because 
you know, one of the challenges in dealing with like even eBay, right, is that um, you know, eBay is, as an application is fairly, fairly large and monolithic, right? So 98% of eBay's infrastructure lives in one of three data centers in the Western United States. Just pretty shocking for most people, right? And, and the application has not been designed to be um, sharded, if you will, right, globally on a global basis. Um, it hasn't really and do you do you own and working. operate those facilities, or do you? Uh, we own and operate. The- we own and operate one facility, um, which is Salt Lake City. Uh, we used to own and operate uh, um, Phoenix, but as part of the divestiture of PayPal, that went to PayPal. Uh, and then, then we're also in the uh, switch facility uh, in Las Vegas. So, um, and I would I would argue that it, 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 even though economically um, I can show that it is fairly cost effective to own and operate your own data center, um, just practically speaking, for the cash, um, it, it may not be the best use of capital. Um, in short, and is that years. across the is that across the board for like two cabinet, three cabinet, or is that purely at scale? Um, mostly, well, certainly for two to three cabinets. No question about that. Uh, uh, you know, owning and operating data center space, but but I mean, it's mostly at scale. You know, I mean, there's a certain point you get to. And I don't have a number that I can say. You know, at so many megawatts, which you know, four, five, six, seven megawatts, whatever it is. Um, you know, then, then owning and operating might make sense. But then, you know, when you start going global, right, start thinking about infrastructure being deployed in Europe, start thinking about infrastructure being deployed in Asia, which, by the way, Asia still is kind of the Wild West when it comes to infrastructure, or even South America, for that matter, or Africa. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know the, the second most mature market for infrastructure is going to be Europe. Um, and it's really expensive over there as compared to the United States. Um, you know, so some of the cheapest data center states in the world uh, quite frankly, is some of the remote locations we have here, or even other remote locations, which you know, which is why you're seeing people like Facebook build up in practically the Arctic Circle, right, in Scandinavia, uh, or, or, or some of these more obscure places that that, that they're deploying. Um, but but back to point is that I think you still can have a lot of technology innovation at the edge. You can still have some technology innovation with companies, but it still requires a lot of capital, and it's it's just a tough proposition, right? I mean, if you've got um, investors who are willing to back you to go go make some innovation, but at a regional level, I think there's a lot of opportunities to still play there. But at scale, at global, you know, I, I, I don't know how you could... With the equities the digitals and the, and the other clouds that are out there. I just don't think that's a viable option. Yeah, and that's, that is a very interesting paradigm that there are to date still so few companies that you can work with that can take you globally right yeah exactly so exactly equinix and digital kind of still have a stranglehold on that paradigm oh for sure so i'm gonna throw a couple rapid fire questions at you and you, you don't have to answer them super quickly but uh I'm, I'm curious where your brain goes as i as i throw these at you so what do you think is a common misconception about data centers today uh, probably the most common misconception about data centers is that um, people don't even realize that they exist, right? I didn't go more more <laughs> general than that, right? You ask the average person, you know, what what how does the internet run? I don't think you'd get an answer. No one really knows. Um, so I think the first misconception is that do they even exist? Um, I think the probably within the industry the biggest misconception is that there are these big 
power drain, um, you know, uh, you know, on 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 global power supplies. That's just not true, right? I mean, I don't know the number offhand, but if we aggregated how much data centers actually consume, they're actually quite uh, efficient stewards of electrical consumption. Uh, yeah, I think it's less than three or four percent less. Less I checked. Yeah, I mean, it says a whole Kumi paper. I think he did. It was like one or two percent, but it's never quite. You know, it sort of plateaued. Um, I think there's more waste in just the average person's you know, electrical consumption at home when they're plugging in their devices uh, than there is. You know, I think actually data centers are a very efficient use of of of, of infrastructure. Um, that's probably the biggest misconception that's out there. It's very sensationalized. Um, and then um, I also think that uh, um, those are the ones that I can think of offhand, right? I mean, there's, there's some other things I can think of. But, I mean, you know, again, data centers are such in the background for most people. I mean, you and I are in it, right? We talk about it all day long. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think for most people it's sort of like a power plant, right? It's just a, it's yeah. a into obscurity. So, so being mindful of the numerous non-disclosures that you've signed and, and I've signed, uh, is, yeah, sure. is there something that you can speak to that uh, some of the most fascinating experiences or, or, or piece of knowledge that you've learned inside of our industry um, since working in it since, you know, 2000? Um, it may not be the obvious one, but I, I, I think, Probably one of the more fascinating uh, pieces of this is the data universes that are being created now, right? It, 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 it's the amount of data that's being stored and retained that, you know, people always talk about the NSA or something like that, right? Um, sometimes people think about just the amount of data that, like, Google has. Um, but I think as, as every device is coming online, and truly every device is coming online, right? Everything. Uh, it's it's. You know, I, I just fired up uh, again new house. We just bought one of these little iRobot things, so the, the uh, robotic vacuum cleaners. I mean, it's crazy, right? How effective that thing is, and it learns as it goes along. You know, your house and where everything is, and, and where your furniture is, and it gets more efficient with each use. Um, and that's just a tiny example of the myriad of things that are coming coming to fruition, but that all, it stores its data, it stores the house maps that it creates as it moves along. Um, and so now I think about like, you know, wiring my house now with the new connected four system, which is a platform to do the interconnection of all the, the you know, my TV, my lighting, my security, um, even my appliances, uh, if I wanted to put them online. Um, so all of that data being housed and stored and collected and analyzed. And it's it, it just, I mean, we're, we're, just at the very precipice of, I think, some amazing uh, insights and innovation and change, um, just just as a, a civilization, right, as a result of harnessing all of this information. Um, so I think that's probably the single biggest thing that that I've grown to appreciate is that you know it's it's the amount of data that we're collecting and the ability to process and analyze all of that. Um, when you think about it at, at scale and it's just, it's, it's kind of stunning. Yeah, it definitely is. And to, to both the points that you've been making where people think, Oh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of data, but that's going into the cloud. Right. And <laughs> right. how many people truly understand and realize, well, there's no such thing as a cloud. It, it that data is going to be stored on a server on either a solid state or spinning disk somewhere in the data center 
in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it's, as I'm sure you find it funny when people say, well, don't you think that cloud computing is going to uh, reduce the need for, for data centers when in fact it's the exact opposite? It's because of cloud oh, computing and the Internet of Things. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So um, Mac or PC? Uh, I'm a PC guy. I've, I've never been. I mean, when I first started with Mac, this is the only one around, but no, I've, I've stayed on PCs for the most part. And what what is the backdrop on your laptop right now? Uh, as of right now, it is a picture of my cat. Gotcha. Um, and then the last question I have for you is if you sit down with someone who's brand new to the data center industry, uh, mm-hmm. just like, you know, when you first met me back in 2005, what is one piece of advice you would give them to help them accelerate their career or, or help kind of ground them in their new role? I, I think the, it's the same advice I always give people. I mean, technology is such a fascinating place to be in, especially when you get to um, some, I don't want to call it bleeding edge, but more uh, cutting edge. It, it's a constant state of learning, right? And so the single biggest thing I always uh, Tell people whether it's through universities or anybody who's getting in the industry, you know, having that thirst for knowledge. Right? If if you don't have that, it's tough to stay ahead. Um, but if you do have it, boy, it's it's a limitless opportunity in tech because uh, there's just so many different ways to go. Um, and you're writing your own book the whole way. Um, and I think that's to me that's one of the more uh, intriguing and engaging parts that I have found in technology is that it's just, it's just never ending. You can keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and, and we're again, just scratching the surface as, as to where things can go. So whether it's, you know, even some of the more obscure parts of technology, which, you know, everyone today, um, not everyone, but, but, you know, a lot of people start thinking about, um, you know, how do I create the new Facebook or how to create the new, uh, uh, Uber or something like that, um, which is awesome. Uh, there's no question about that. I think actually the five years, some of the more innovation um, or some of the more innovating um, uh, technology advances are going to occur in other industries that are outside of tech, you know, i.e. manufacturing, um, industrial, uh, even automotive. I mean, look at what's happening in the car industry, right? The entire car industry is being turned upside down and you're having a, an upstart manufacturer, Tesla, basically shake the fabric of what's been around for you know, 100 years. Uh, in, in, in the major um, car manufacturers. I mean, you know, when did you ever think you'd hear of an electric Lamborghini? Um, you know, that company, much to its chagrin, has had to create an electric vehicle just to stay competitive because that's the way the world's going. Um, yeah. I think, you know, when I look at uh, just in my world in supply chain and procurement, I mean, the entire B2B, uh, business-to-business, uh, world is going to shift online in the next decade, and that will usher in an enormous amount of of change, uh, efficiency gains, um, and I think people who are really staying on top of how to apply, um, you know, sort of, uh, I'll call them rote e-commerce principles, but to B2B activities um, can, can go very far, right? But I, I, I think, you know, medical, whatever, I mean, legal, whatever. I mean, any, any vertical that you see is going to be changed dramatically by the influence of tech. And I think if you can uh, sometimes kind of 
you know, you don't need to be in Silicon Valley. You can be in, in all sorts of different places. Oil and gas, for instance. You know, how does technology change the oil and gas industry? Um, and not just on the exploration side, but just you know, on the process side, the operation side. I think those are some of the things that are going to happen in the next five to seven years that are, that are really exciting. Yeah. I think uh, I've got a fun story that I know you'll appreciate that's, that's tied to this. Uh, one of our partners is up in the Pacific Northwest, and they had a, a brand new sales rep who started working uh-huh. for him. And they asked him, they said, well, what, what industry do you really want to become like an expert at? And the guy said, well, uh-huh. medicinal marijuana. I think that's, that's the future. And they said, great, man. Become an expert on all things that are related to technology for that industry. Uh-huh. And he has. And over the last two years, the guy has built a massive book of business and become one of the most well-connected dudes uh, who understands the technology aspect of that industry because it's kind of brand yeah. new ground for, for so many people. Um, and it's to your well, point, I, I, you know, specialization in, in different areas is a great way to uh, differentiate yourself from, from the field. It's just understanding you could go in so many different directions, you know, pick a couple and start playing. Oh, for sure. And I think that's, it's actually interesting you bring that one up because, um, you know, the entire legalization of marijuana, right, is going to usher in, it's the new tobacco, right? I mean, so the people who are sort of ahead of the curve on that one stand to, 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 to reap the whirlwind of the transformation of that entire world. And that, that I think, is fascinating one just onto itself. Well, uh, before before we cut this off, man, I want to give you an opportunity to let people know where to go if they want to learn about some of the cool stuff that you're working on at eBay and or if people want to connect with you online. Yeah, well, for sure. Uh, you know, I'm always open to networking, always open uh, on LinkedIn, right? So you can find me, Richard Donaldson, on LinkedIn uh, there. Um, and, and, and that's probably the single best place to go find me. And I, I'm pretty active on there as far as posting different things that are going on. I usually put, put some different, you know, not daily, but, you know, a few times a week, different things that are kind of observing the industry. Um, I haven't been as good on my blogging as it should be, but, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd definitely check out my LinkedIn profile. Is there still, I know eBay used to have a site up that showed what the, you know, the energy per compute consumption was and whatnot. Is that, is that still up and running? Uh, it, it is not as active anymore, um, but we'll probably rekindle something around that uh, this year. We'll see. Gotcha. Well, Richard, I love you, man. Thank you so much for taking cool, the time. And uh, oh, hopefully we, we can chat soon. And again, you, you, you've been an inspiration in so many ways for both me personally and professionally. And I hope we talk much sooner than uh, six months. Oh, man. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, obviously, and it is it, it, for you anytime. So it's, it's always great to connect. And, and even something like this, you know, this is quote unquote an interview. It's not, it's, it's just catching up. So it's awesome. Thank you, brother. I love you. Peace. Um, okay. All right. Later. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services 
space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. 